again, I, I invited you on night one to think of Solomon after having a week of complete indulgence and drinking what he wanted and sleeping with who he wanted and, and spending all that he wanted and eating whatever he felt like and ordering people around to do whatever he needed. And somewhere in the middle of all this, Solomon went south. He was one of God's uh, chosen kings of Israel. First of all, Saul, Saul biffed it. Then here comes King David. David murders Uriah. He sleeps with Bathsheba. And Bathsheba is Solomon's mom. But Bathsheba is actually a woman who is bathing on a rooftop to try to allure David. David, the king, calls for Bathsheba's husband to be killed in the army so David can sleep with Bathsheba, and they give birth to Solomon. And Solomon uh, grows up, and in his wisdom, he's able to acquire all these things. And then he's got 700 wives and 300 concubines, and you know, like, like the estimation of history says about $2.1 trillion dollars. And, and then he writes 11 chapters, kind of categorically goes by everything in life. And he talks about food. You can eat all this food. And then he says the same thing for all of them in the original language. But it was like grasping at wind. Um, so if you, if you see someone running around out here before the buses leave and you give them the objective to catch some wind and bring it back to you. Um, from a heavenly perspective, that's how goofy it is to look at this life and think that it's going to satisfy us. It's it's like you know it's like a it's like a freshman trying to chase wind when the buses are trying to leave. Everyone on the bus would go, "What <laughs> what are you doing?" And even though we're going to get older, it's going to feel a lot more comfortable. That that analogy is going to make a lot more sense to us because we're going to be sold this lie that money and finances and power and wealth are going to bring comfort and peace and solidarity and um, but nothing will. And, and I think, again, night one, looking at the end result of money and fame and power and those things, even if you look at neurotic uh, disorders or if you look at uh, mental health issues, it, it, it's almost directly proportional to how many people follow you on Instagram. The more that you have, the more likely you are to suffer from a mental disorder. Why, why is that the case? It's, it's, it's because you have, you've now reached the pinnacle and you thought as soon as you get there, it's going to be fixed and it's only gotten worse. The chasm's only grown. And so after teasing us for 11 chapters, Solomon's going to finally give his conclusion. What is this life for? It's meaningless, meaningless. Everything under the sun is meaningless. And so he, he, he obviously directs at it and he alludes to it throughout his whole book. But at the end, he's going to say it really um, abruptly, but specifically too. Chapter 12, beginning at verse 13. Now all this has been heard. Everything under the sun, the chasing of everything from ornaments to um, uh, uh, fleets of, of money and cars and uh, possessions and um, ships and women and life and drink and everything. And he says, the pursuit of all of it has been heard. It's like putting it on trial, right? And the defendant has finished the court case. And here is the conclusion on the matter. Here's what the jury said. If you want to experience life, fear God and keep his commandments. This is the joy, the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So Solomon starts by writing Proverbs. It's a very optimistic book. He writes a Song of Solomon, which is a very sexual book. It's like extremely sexual. Um, people like in, in Hebrew, in Jewish culture, you can't even start to read it until you've had your bar mitzvah because it's literally Solomon talking about his beloved and it's a, it's a sexual encounter that they have. But he seems to in some ways recognize, he's speaking about to one woman and to the lover is speaking to him and it's, it's graphic, but it's not just one direction. It's the wife writing back to Solomon and all these things back and forth. And then you get to Ecclesiastes, and it's towards the end of his life where he just recognizes that after all those things have been fulfilled, the only thing that really matters 
is not anything under the sun. It's what's above the sun. It's what's outside of everything under the sun. And he said, fear God and keep his commandments. So um, I, what I want to wrap up with today, and we only have a couple minutes to do so, is if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 12. I want to turn there. I want to read one thing. I want to suggest an idea, read you a poem, and then I'll close in prayer. Um, the poem is not by Taylor Swift this time. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that should never happen again. Okay. Um, Romans chapter 12 says this. Um, remember, when the Bible's originally written, it's not, um, when Paul writes Romans, he doesn't put chapter markings on it. So when Paul sits down to write, this is Stephanus later on in the 15th century or whatever, the Masoretes come and add these different things. But when Paul's originally writing, he didn't create chapter markings. So if your Bible has like headings on it, it's for our American minds to find things quickly. But the intent of Romans is that you would read it all in one setting. So you didn't really skip around and jump around. It was supposed to be read in one complete thought, right? It would be like if we put, um, let's say you wrote like a four or five page long DM to someone and we intercepted that message and then we put chapter markings on it. And then I said, let's look at Jennifer chapter three, verse two. And it's this one line. You'd probably be pretty frustrated at the idea that that's the summation of everything you were saying, right? Because in a message that's three or four pages long, or in this case, 28 pages long, if we were to divide it up and say, this was her main point, or this was his main point, you would go, it's got to be read in its context, right? Because you might have a, a, ver, a, a chapter or a verse inside of your long DM that's actually supposed to be satirical or sarcastic or antagonistic on purpose or some sort of an inside joke. And if you don't know it in its context, it can be pretty confusing. So when Paul starts Romans chapter 12, he starts with the word therefore, and the word therefore is there for a reason. In Romans chapter 1, God has made himself clear. Romans chapter 2, and everyone is underneath the law. Romans chapter 3, and no one is righteous, not even one. Romans chapter 4, it doesn't matter how Jewish you are, you need to come unto Christ. Romans chapter 5, God demonstrates his love for us in this while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans chapter 6, the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. Romans chapter 7, so when you become a Christian, is life going to be simple then and you never sin again? No, Romans chapter 7, beginning at verse 5 through 12. For I do what I don't want to do, Paul writes, but I also don't do the things that I know I'm supposed to do. This is the life of a Christian. You don't all of a sudden become someone who does everything perfectly. In fact, you're going to struggle with it for the rest of your life. The difference is now you're going to struggle because you know that it hurts the heart of your Savior. You're not going to struggle just because you're, you want to be a moralistic person, right? And, and someone asked me this morning in the cafeteria, well, if I gave my life to Christ last night, what happens if I go and I mess up? Well, the, the Bible gives us this analogy over and over again of adoption, okay? So think about it in those terms. When a man adopts a son, when a family adopts a kid, when that kid messes up, do they cease to be the child any longer? No, that's not the way that families work, okay? I can give you 72 instances just this weekend where my kids disobeyed me or they had a quote-unquote season of disobedience, right? That's one of the common phrases. Does that cancel out your sonship? Does that cancel out your adoption? No, that's not how adoption works. And if God is giving us this ongoing illustration throughout Scripture that he is Father and we are his children, when we cry out to him, Romans 8 verse 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 verse 15, when you choose to give your life over to Christ, God breathes in you a new spirit of adoption to sonship by which we are now allowed to cry out to him, Abba, Father. 
It'd be really confusing if God kept using the illustration of a father and a son and a father and a daughter, and yet as soon as you got back into the party scene for a little bit and then got out of it, that God was over it. That's not how parenting works. And, and I know it, it's lost on some of us because maybe you have an absent father. Maybe you have a neglectful or abusive mom. Maybe you have some, but you, you have to try to do your best to get rid of that idea in your mind and say, what would a good father do? Find a good father in your life. Find a good father in your church. Find a good father in your friends group and ask, what does it mean? Why do you love your kids? Why, what would you do for your kids? And you're going to hear very biblical responses. Even non-believers are going to tell you, I would do anything for my kid. What happens when your kid messes up? Are they no longer your kid? That's the goofiest thing I've ever heard in my life. That's not the way that parenting works. So you're not going to go down this mountain and be perfect. You're not going to go down this mountain and go, and this is what Satan's going to want to whisper to you. As soon as you go back into doing the things you were doing before, even accidentally, or you fall back into the same addictions or pornography or whatever it was, you're going to immediately think, uh-oh, I've regressed. It didn't really work. Uh-oh, uh-oh. And you, you're going to catastrophize your life. Here's what Paul the apostle says, Paul says, I often find myself doing the things I know I'm not supposed to do, and I often find myself not doing the things that I know that God's called me to do. Then Paul concludes that chapter by saying, who can rescue me from this body of death? The answer is, Jesus can. When is it going to happen? When we shed our mortal coil on the last day. And until then, you and I will fight. We will struggle. We will, go, we will have this kind of roller coaster walk with God, and it will be difficult at times. And we're gonna, but the, the point of it is this. It has to be, a, it, you're, you need to wrestle with your sin, not justify it, defend it, and give in to it. You need to hate your sin. I look, uh, MacArthur, he, he said, this phrase, I think it's resonated with me. He said, when I was young, I sinned a lot more often, and I hated it a lot less. And now that I've become a man, more mature in my Christianity, I actually sin far less, but I hate it a lot more. And so you need to learn, you need a new appetite, you need to learn to hate the taste of sin. And love what obedience feels like. And that, for some of us, is going to be a slower path than other things. And, and there's a lot of things that are going to take you sideways in that. But I want to get to some of that here in a second. Therefore, okay, that's Romans chapter 7. You're going to mess up. Romans 8, but there's no condemnation when you do mess up. 8, eight verse 1. Because you've been adopted to sonship. Romans 8, 28. And God's got a good story that he's writing with your life. Romans 8, 38 and 39. And no one's going to snatch you out of his hands. For I am convinced, Paul writes, for neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God when we've been found in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans chapter 9, but make no mistake, God uses and creates some people for special use and some people for common use. The majority of us in here, our obedience will look like a simple, common life. He's not going to tell everyone to build an ark, okay? Don't get wrapped up in TikTok theology that God has this really massive plan for everyone's life where you're going to do some crazy thing for the gospel. The Bible seems to indicate that our role as Christians is to, the Old Testament book of Micah tells us, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. For some of you, the most courageous and bold thing you're going to do for the gospel is raise two or three kids and point them on the path of salvation. And they're going to grow up and raise their families in the same thing. And you will be exactly inside of what God has called you to do. Because one of the greatest myths of our culture is that your responsibility is to fulfill your potential. And it's not. It's to fulfill your calling. That's not the same thing. Robin Williams 
who ended up taking his life after becoming this world-renowned actor. He was a comedic actor. He did voiceovers, and then he moved into the stratosphere of drama, and he won an Oscar for Goodwill Hunting, and he conquered everything in multimedia. And then he found himself, and there's this quote that's often cited, and it's often attributed to Robin Williams. And he said, when I was a little kid, I was afraid of being a failure. And now that I've grown older, my biggest fear is that I've succeeded in things that don't matter. How terrible would it be to finish your life and be successful at things that just don't matter? And so in the midst of that, Romans chapter 10, so how do we, how do we receive this gift? Romans 10, 9 through 10, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that he was raised from the dead, you will be saved. This flows directly into Romans chapter 12 where Paul is saying, salvation is a free gift from God. But friends, make no mistake, discipleship and continuing in faith in our culture is going to take some real deliberate work on your behalf. Salvation is a free gift, Romans, uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, not by works so that no man can boast. Oh, great. So then I'm going to go down this mountain and I'm going to go back home and I just live the way that I live because God's yoke is easy and his burden is light. False. The, the New Testament book of James says that each of us are led astray when we give in to our selfish desires. Those temptations give way and they become like a snare on our foot. They grab us like a bear trap and then we get hooked. And then one day what you'll find is if you let sin run rampant in your life, you go, but I thought there's nothing that could separate me from the love of God. Correct. From the, from the father to you, there is nothing that you will do that will cancel out your sonship. But when when sin grows so much in your heart, something really interesting happens in the human heart. We turn back towards God and say, I don't want to be your son anymore. That will cancel your sonship. That will cancel your adoption. If you were to look at God and go, no, nothing to, adoption, that's the way that adoption works. There's nothing my kids can do that makes them not my sons. But there's a lot of ways they can emancipate themselves from me and say, I don't want anything to do with you. So you don't need to walk around terrified like one day you're going to step on the wrong thing and say a bad word and God's going to go, that's it, adoption's canceled. That's not how the system works. But sin left unchecked becomes desirable. Your appetite will be for the world and not for God and you will find yourselves growing in that sin, loving the things of this world and finding a distaste for anything holy and then saying, God, I want nothing to do with you anymore. That's the way that sin works. Sin is a really interesting disease. The first symptom of sin is to convince the haver that it hasn't happened to them. The, the weird, strange symptom of sin is that when you catch it, the first thing sin wants to do is convince you you don't have it. It's a strange symptom of sin. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. I love this verse right here. This is what we're going to camp on for the rest of our time. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That word renewing of the mind is this, it's word that we get for the idea of repentance. Repentance is a really uh, important word in the Christian Bible, and it means to turn away from what you are doing. It literally means in the Greek to change your mind, metanoia, to change the way that you think. Here's one thing that's true about you. If you've recently come to Christ, or if you've tried to do this like, I follow Jesus, but I also follow this world, your brain is screwed up. Like your brain's whacked. Your brain gets, you have 168 hours a week of being in culture, and if you think that for 168 hours times 52, you can be in the world and then spend 72 hours at camp that you're going to undo what your brain has been learning from culture for the rest of the time, I don't know what you've been smoking, but it's not going to work. That's just not a thing. 
So how do you put up a reasonable fight in this culture to changing your brain, to having it think the way of Christ, to having it think differently? Paul makes no bones about it. You must change the way you think. In, in psychology, we call this synaptogenesis. The synapses in your brain that tell you what's good and what's bad and what's right and what's wrong, you have to fry them and regrow them inside of the gospel. The part of your brain that says you're worthy because you're funny or people like you or that your, your identity is in how good looking you are, your identity is in how fast you are or, or how well you play certain activities or how smart you are. You have to fry that synapse in your brain and replace it with gospel. That's a process. And, and, and so for a lot of us, here's the one thing I'm going to tell you. If you make a commitment as big or for some of you, I don't want to use the word recommitment. That's not really a biblical term, but but maybe this weekend you found that you're living way too much like the world and you want to turn back to Christ and you want to go and live like a follower of Jesus should live and that's not how you've been living. That's a big commitment. It would be like if you walk up to me after this week and you're like, I think I'm going to go for the world record in the long jump. And I went, that's a long jump. Like that's a big commitment. All right, how are you going to start that process? And you're like, and you looked at me kind of confused, like, what do you mean? Start the process. Well, what are you going to do differently? Let me see your phone. You spend six hours a day in front of your screen. Do you think you're going to win the long jump by doing that? Yeah, I think so. Because this time I really want it. That's not going to change anything. If you go down this hill and think, well, this time I really mean it, that doesn't change anything. That's not repentance. That's not changing your mind. The word conform there, it means that we are all as Christians and people in general, we're like jello. Whatever you put us in, we become like that. So if you think to yourself, well, I don't have to join a church because my relationship with God is personal. It's not a thing. It's not a thing. It's popular. It's not real. Well, I don't uh, Being in a church doesn't make you a Christian. Correct. And being in a herd doesn't make you a zebra. But have you seen the zebra out of a herd? It's only a zebra for a very short period of time. The power of the zebra is in the confusion of its stripes amongst its people, right? It's like drawing fire from uh, like a, a campground and you light a stick on fire. That's like you going home. You're like, I can do it. Oh no, it's gone out. Here we go. That's what it means to try to do life on your own. Relationship with Christ is not a private affair. It's meant to be done in a group setting. Here's the question I want to ask you as you leave here. What do you need to cut out of your life if you want to take your walk with Christ seriously? Second question, what do you need to start up in your life if you want to take your life seriously, this walk with Christ seriously? And thirdly, who do you need to call up in your life to forgive or ask for forgiveness that you can start this walk with Christ with a blank slate? thinking you're going to go back down and do the same things that led you to the place of rebellion that you've been in or that you're going to go back and you, maybe you gave your life to Christ for the first time this weekend. You can't go, you conform, you're jello. You'll become what you're around. For some of us, it means gonna, we're going to be make, making big changes in our life. So let me finish by reading this poem uh, for you guys. It's written by a woman named Portia Nelson. I think it really accurately helps us understand what repent, true repentance is, turning away from stuff. Repentance doesn't mean I feel bad about my sin, so I go back and do the same thing again. It means I try, I'm doing something new now. Here's what it says. Chapter one. I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. 
this is not my fault. It takes me forever to find a way out. Chapter two. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it this time, so I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes me a long time to get out. Chapter three. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it this time, but I still fall in. It has become an addiction. My eyes are open. I know where I am. I'd be willing to say this time it is my fault, but I know how to get out quickly. Chapter four. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter five. I walk down another street. Repentance is not going back to the same things that you fell into before and then with some force of will just not giving into them. The Bible says you are to flee from temptation and stand firm in trial and we have done the opposite. You are not called to with your newfound faith in Christ or your re-energized faith in Christ go back and prove to yourself how you can stand in the midst of temptation. The Bible says this is folly and foolishness at at its highest degree. What does it mean for you in your life to take a new street. New streets are going to bring new conclusions. And if you're tired of winding up in the same place in your life in rebellion against God, let me challenge you with something. It might take big incision to make a big decision. It might make cutting something out of your life that you don't want to cut out. But at the end of the day, if you don't, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and then forfeit his soul? Hopefully one day, and we don't know how his life concluded, we can talk to Solomon when we get up there and talk to him about what kind of folly, meaningless, and meaninglessness this life was. I don't want to be part of that group. I want to be the one that recognized and understood what truly matters. Fear God and keep his commandments. What does it mean to walk down a new street? Would you pray with me? God, in, the, in this weekend, in, your, in these conversations, in your word, in, these, in everything that we've been doing, would these things stick? Would, would they not just be like water off a duck's back, but instead would they cement themselves in our mind? Would they become underpinnings by which we make adjustments and that we incise things and we cut things out of our life? And we recognize that in the same way we'd make a big decision to start a new life path toward an Olympic goal, that following you is, should be met with the exact same amount of seriousness. What do we need to cut out? What do we need to start up? And who do we need to call up? in order to start this new decision that we've made, this new life, this new reception of your gospel in a way that's going to carry us through to the moment that we see you face to face. God, may we not be a people who accomplish meaningless things. May we be a people who are faithful to the calling that you've placed in our life, that one day we'll see you face to face and hear, come in, good and faithful servant, and find rest. We love you. In your name we pray, amen.